general, I notice the number of listeners to this podcast increases a little with each episode. This is in evidence as I see that more people check out the latest episode. This is good news, but it presents a problem. I've been presenting you with essays that amount to first drafts that will ultimately, if I can carry this through, be refined and reformulated into a book on the temporally integrated causality landscape. Maybe I'll call it the landscape of consciousness. This approach, presenting audio essays each week that refer to and build upon previous essays, is quite different from what other podcasters do. We are now in the later chapters exploring myriad topics that are not essential to the core canon of my theoretical framework. I benefit from these latter essays because here I stretch my thinking and my exposure to new into new ideas, wherein I might come upon new insights, counterpoints to my ideas, unknown lines of evidence, and so on. But if you are new to this podcast, if you are listening to your first or second or third episode and you are hearing this, I encourage you to go back to the beginning. I know the project doesn't really get going until a few episodes in, but I have been building upon a foundation that I laid back there at the start. I'm not just whistling Dixie here. I'm actually trying to understand what consciousness is and how it fits into a physical account of the universe. I appreciate you for listening, and I hope you will find it worth your time to go back and hear the earlier chapters. I think you will see that the chapter in which we find ourselves now is made more sensible when taken in terms of its predecessors. In this episode, I will explore an argument that was made by Roger Penrose in his books Shadows of the Mind and The Emperor's New Mind. Penrose is a mathematician and philosopher. In The Emperor's New Mind, he writes, quote, What is truth? How do we form judgments as to what is true and what is untrue about the world? Are we simply following some algorithm, no doubt favored over other less effective possible algorithms by the powerful process of natural selection? Or might there be some other possibly non-algorithmic route? Perhaps intuition, instinct, or insight to the divining of truth? This seems a difficult question. Our judgments depend on complicated, interconnected combinations of sense data, reasoning, and guesswork. Moreover, in many worldly situations, there may not be a general agreement about what is actually true and what is false. To simplify the question, let us consider only mathematical truth. How do we form our judgments, perhaps even our certain knowledge concerning mathematical questions? Penrose believes and shows quite nicely in his arguments that mathematicians ascertain mathematical truths by means that are not entirely computational. Certainly they utilize computation, algorithms, on a regular basis, but he establishes that there is something more and intuits that this realization is critical to understanding what human consciousness is and how human thinking works. In The Mystery of Consciousness, John Searle writes, quote, There has never been a time when more nonsense was talked about computers than the present era. Here is an example. Recently, a chess-playing program, Deep Blue, was able to beat the very best of the world's grandmasters at chess. What psychological significance should we attach to such a program? There was in the press a great deal of discussion about how this might be a threat to human dignity or some such. But if you know what a computer is and you know what these programs do, you will not be tempted to any such spectacular conclusion. A computer is a device that manipulates symbols. We have invented forms of electronics that enable the device to manipulate the symbols very rapidly, millions of manipulations per second. In the case of the chess-playing computers, we can encode our representations of chess moves into the meaningless symbols in the computer. 
we can program the computer so that it processes very rapidly and then we can get it to print out instructions which we decode as being about chess. But the computer knows nothing of chess, moves, pieces, or anything else. It just manipulates meaningless formal symbols according to the instructions we give it." Unquote. Later he says, quote, But, so a common objection goes, should we not think of the brain as also manipulating zeros and ones because neuro neurons are in a sense binary? They either fire or don't. And if the brain operates in a binary code, then surely the brain must be a digital computer too. Several things are wrong with this analogy, but the most important is this. The crucial difference between the neurons and the symbols of the computer is that the neurons act causally to cause consciousness and other mental phenomena by specific biological mechanisms." Unquote. Roger Penrose uses something called Gödel's theorem to prove that there are things that we can see to be true even though no algorithm could discover them. The example that he provides is a version of Gödel's theorem involving the halting problem. It shows that no set of computational rules could ever show of a computation that it will never stop. But we can often immediately see that the computation will not stop, so we must be using some way of knowing that is not a computation. I believe John Searle provides a helpful and concise description of Penrose's argument. On Penrose's book, Shadows of the Mind, Searle writes, quote, the book is long and difficult, but the overall structure of the argument is as follows. 1. Gödel's theorem proves that there are true statements in mathematical systems which are not provable as theorems of the system. 2. A specific version of Gödel's theorem, the unsolvability of the halting problem, can be used to prove that our conscious behavior cannot even be simulated on a computer. The halting problem, as we will see, is a purely abstract mathematical problem concerning the possibility of getting a set of mathematical procedures that will determine whether a computation will stop or halt. For example, if we program our computer to start with the sequence 1, 2, 3 and find a number larger than 8, it will stop on 9. But if we ask it to find an odd number that is the sum of two even numbers, it will never stop because there is no such number. The proof demonstrates that there are some non-stopping computational procedures that cannot be shown to be non-stopping by computational methods, but we can nonetheless see that they are non-stopping. 3. Neurons are computable, i.e., their various features can be computationally simulated. Therefore, they cannot explain consciousness, because consciousness has features that are not computable and neurons are computable. 4. To explain consciousness, we require something genuinely non-computable." We can clearly reason that the sum of two even numbers will never be an odd number. So if Penrose is right and there are such examples, how does the mind accomplish them? I'm reminded of my discussion in episode 24 on attention. I talked about visual search experiments conducted by Anne Treisman and Bella Gilles. On this topic, Koch wrote in The Quest for Consciousness, quote, they focused on a deceptively simple question. How does the time taken to find the target increase as the number of distracting objects increases? For some combinations of target and distractors, the search is effortless. Subjectively, the target pops out of the display. Finding a red bar among 4, 8, 16, or 32 green bars scattered all over the place happens very fast, no matter how many green elements are present. If a bunch of L's are placed on the screen, the odd plus stands out. In the parlance of computer science, the search proceeds in parallel, unless the individual elements begin to crowd into each other. In general, 
pop-out occurs if the target is sufficiently different from the distractors in any one elemental attribute, such as color, size, form, or motion, as when you rapidly move your computer mouse back and forth to find the location of the pointer on the screen." Unquote. We utilize two different visual search strategies. Parallel search, in which the item of interest pops out for us to simply take notice of it, and serial search, which is slow and methodical in the way that an algorithm is methodical. This latter strategy is necessary when the target we are looking for is very similar to the distractors around it. The reason I bring this up is that the serial method, which is like an algorithm, is one of two different ways of attaining a goal. It seems to me that it would be much easier to program a robot that uses a serial search strategy and much, much harder to make a robot that could do parallel search. In fact, visual recognition like facial recognition has been very difficult for computer systems to be built to accomplish. But for us, the pop-out method is trivial and nearly instantaneous. We only resort to a methodical search strategy under particularly difficult circumstances, such as trying to find a dropped contact lens or to locate Waldo in a field of Waldo-like imposters. To the question, would the sum of two even numbers uh, ever be an odd number, we can demonstrate to ourselves almost immediately that it will not. In a sense, this insight simply pops out. Even if we were to allow that neurons essentially operate algorithmically with one another because of the way that they've been wired by development and experience, the conscious mind seems to be possessed of capabilities that are outside of an algorithmic nature. If nothing further, I will grant Penrose that. Searle's Chinese room experiment, which I have described in at least two previous episodes, shows that computation is entirely syntactical, that is, symbolic. I have argued along with Koch and others that conscious contents are meaningful, the contents of consciousness are semantic. I have taken this further to suggest that they are meaningful in a relational sense. Conscious perception is the total flip side of an algorithmic process. I'll give you an example. You're walking along a trail in the woods with a friend. Looking ahead on the path, you see something roundish and green. You take a few more steps, give the object in view your attention, and suddenly and triumphantly declare to the man beside you, Holy shit, dude, that is a big fucking frog to which your compatriot accords, yeah, that is indeed a big fucking frog. In this example, the thing which you have seen pops out and is characterized by at least two phenomenal dimensions of interest, bigness and frogness. You identify it as a frog because it matches with your experience of having witnessed frogs and seen pictures and so on of all manner of frogs and turtles and other little creatures before. You have a schema for frogness, and the thing to which you are now in attendance is a match. Likewise, you have in your schema a general sense of the expected proportions of its membership. This one is larger than expected. This is a big fucking frog. You do not consciously build toward the conclusion of what is standing there on the path in front of you. You do not in rapid succession observe two bulbous eyes, check, slimy green surface, check, two long hind legs, check, lives in the woods, check, etc and then conclude that the thing is a frog, the way Deep Blue might calculate a chess move. Rather, it simply pops out that way in all its amphibian glory. There may be and probably are computational elements that have occurred in the process of producing your visual scene, in controlling your attention, and in calling forth your associational memories, etc. But consciousness is a direct exposure to the phenomenal. You are witness to the meaning of the thing, and the meanings of that meaning, and so on, occur accordingly in your mind. And if you were like me, one of those meanings would be a sense of amusement at the novelty of running across such a beast, a little kick of dopamine, like that which might occur at the punchline of a good joke. You might observe that we often make mistakes in our perception. 
Suppose, in the current example, that it turned out, after all, to be a stone that simply looked to you and your companion from your vantage point, just like a frog. Of course, visual illusions like this occur. You and your friend might laugh at the absurdity that it could have conceivably been a frog. After all, it was way too big to have been any frog either of you have ever seen before. But I suggest that visual illusions support the case that consciousness is of a non-computational nature. Otherwise, your capacity to see the giant frog, if there really is one, might be compromised by the factors allowed in the computation. Novelties of all kinds might be difficult for algorithms to work on. This might be one reason that reliable computational methods of facial recognition have been so difficult for engineers to acquire. I think that this pop-out effect of meaningful contents might be the thing which consciousness brings to the table in terms of function. According to the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, the contents of consciousness arise from subsystems which occur within a larger integrated system of neuronal elements. The level of temporally integrated causality across each subsystem is higher than that of the system as a whole. From the system's point of view, this provides an experience of the dynamics of each subsystem that makes up a part of it. There is thus a phenomenal landscape composed of relative temporally integrated causality. We have established that there is no locus of consciousness to be found somewhere in the brain to which all of the different networks export their results. If each of these different networks were running an algorithm, we might expect the results to be printed to some homunculus which can view them all. But clearly this is not how it works. I have argued based on the TICL framework that conscious contents are meaningful because the subsystems underlying them occur in an ordered set of topographical maps and hierarchies. The meaning is the relationship between the dynamics of each coexisting subsystem to one another and to the whole. No network in the brain knows there is a path or a friend or a forest or a frog. When you are having that experience, you know it. It is unified and meaningful to you. Roger Penrose is right in observing that there is something above and beyond complex computation which must be accounted for in order to understand consciousness in the universe. Using Gödel's theorem, he demonstrates that we can see certain things to be true, but which no algorithm could solve. In the halting problem, an algorithm apparently cannot be written which would tell us that a certain mathematical problem will run on forever or will fail to find a solution. Searle writes, quote, it is perhaps important to emphasize that Penrose is not saying that no mathematical processes done by conscious humans can be simulated on a computer. Of course they can. Many of the things that mathematicians do, and indeed just about all the mathematical operations that ordinary people do, can be simulated on computers. Penrose is only eager to insist that there are some areas of conscious human thinking, as particularly exemplified in Gödel's theorem, that cannot be simulated on a computer. To repeat, he is not saying that none of our mathematical abilities are simulatable, but rather that not all of them are. The argument is entirely about certain arcane areas of mathematics. He says, in conversation, that he emphasizes mathematics because that is what he knows most about. But he thinks perhaps similar arguments could be brought forward about music, art, or other conscious human activities. It is just that as a mathematician, he wants to show that not all of his mathematical abilities can be simulated on a computer." Unquote. Toward the end of The Emperor's New Mind, Penrose writes, quote, In my own arguments, I have tried to support this view, that there must indeed be something essential that is missing from any purely computational picture. Yet I hold also to the hope that it is through science and mathematics that some profound advances in the understanding of mind must eventually come to light. 
There is an apparent dilemma here, but I have tried to show that there is a genuine way out. Computability is not at all the same thing as being mathematically precise. There is as much mystery and beauty as one might wish in the precise platonic mathematical world, and most of this mystery resides with concepts that lie outside the comparatively limited part of it where algorithms and computation reside. Consciousness seems to me to be such an important phenomenon that I simply cannot believe that it is something just accidentally conjured up by a complicated computation. It is the phenomenon whereby the universe's very existence is made known." Unquote. Hear, hear, Dr. Penrose. Perhaps mathematical computation fails to achieve what the conscious mind does because it is necessarily objective. It has no point of view from which to establish meaning. Is it amusing to come across a big fucking frog? That is not a mathematical question. Is it right to take another man's life or to deprive him of his liberty or property? That is not a mathematical question. The answer doesn't compute. Is that sunset or that piece of music beautiful? Again, not a mathematical question. And yet we humans answer such questions to ourselves and to one another all the time. Up is the sky. Down is the earth. The time is now. None of this perspective results from objective computation. Rather, these facts are bound to the human condition, established from a human point of view. Everything is relative. Is it good or bad? Is it tall or short? Compared to what? Is it a big fucking frog? Thank you.